Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, Professor of Political Science at NYU, and Director of the Alexander Hamilton Center at NYU, and frequent guest here at EconTalk. Bruce, welcome back. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Our topic for today is uh, danger and threats to the United States, and I want to start off talking about Iran, which appears to be a threat to the United States, and its leader, Ahmadinejad, which I might be pronouncing it remotely correctly. I'm sure Bruce will correct me if I'm not. Bruce, is is he a threat to the United States? Is he a dangerous man? Uh, there seems to be a lot of feeling that he is and that something will be done about it imminently. Uh, is there any truth to that? I don't think so. Uh, I'm on all counts. Um, first of all, is Iran a threat to the United States? Now, that depends on what you mean by a threat. It's certainly a threat to some of our friends. Uh, is it a direct threat to the United States in the sense that Iran could, for example, if it had a nuclear weapon or a chemical or biological weapon, it could launch a missile attack against the United States? No, it doesn't have missiles with sufficient range to reach the United States or it could smuggle a nuclear device into the United States and then detonate it. No, the suitcase uh, hydrogen bomb is uh, more a reality of movies than a reality of the world in which we live. Uh, Ahmadinejad. Ahmadinejad is not a really major figure in Iran. It is true he has a very fancy title. He is the president of Iran. But if one looks at how the Iranian government operates, the structure of the Iranian government gives virtually all power to the Supreme Council. The Supreme Council has a veto over all legislation. It has a veto over all prospective candidates for office. It can remove people from office. Uh, so everybody who is elected to a position in Iran more or less serves at the pleasure of the Supreme Council. That includes Ahmadinejad. I, I recently did a study, the details of which I can't go into, but uh, in any event, to get the data I needed for that study, I interviewed uh, quite a few Iran specialists uh, about who the players are in Iran trying to shape policy how much influence can they exert, and so forth. Uh, Ahmadinejad ranked 18th. Now, there were about 50 internal players of some consequence, so he was not at the bottom of the barrel. But 18th is not the top either. It's not close to the top. If you start to think about who might be the 18th most powerful person in the United States, you don't really worry that much about that person's uh, policies. Now... That is at odds with, I would say, most people's public perception. He gets quoted a lot. He says a lot of uh, extreme things, controversial things. He is the president, which I think gives at least the illusion of power. Uh, how confident are you that that assessment that he's 18th is correct? And if it is correct, which I'm sure you're very confident, Bruce, since I know you well, uh, why do we have the impression that is uh, the opposite? Well, first of all, is he 18th? Maybe he's well, 17th. Yeah, okay. Maybe he's 19th. <laughs> uh, he's not second or third or fourth. Um, why do we have that impression? Well, there are several reasons. He's a very outspoken man. He, he says many extraordinarily outrageous things, and so he gets a lot of media coverage in the United States. He's newsworthy. He came to power in Iran. He got elected as president. He had been mayor of Tehran. Uh, by carving out a, um, a constituency of uh, ordinary Iranians, not very well educated, uh, who, who saw in him somebody who would advance Iranian nationalist sentiment. 
His popularity, by the way, has faded quite a lot. His party within Iran, within Iran, his party keeps losing uh, by elections. Um, why does the American media give him so much attention? I think there are two main reasons. One, as I've said, he's very outspoken. He says outrageous things. Are very quotable. The other, the American media has poor access or no access to Ali Khamenei. Ali Khamenei is the most powerful person in Iran. He is the head of the Supreme Council. Uh, it's interesting to note that when uh, Vladimir Putin visited Iran, he had an audience with Ali Khamenei. When European leaders have visited Iran, they have not had an audience with Ali Khamenei. They get to see Ahmadinejad. Getting to see Ali Khamenei is getting to see the big guy, the guy who has the veto, the guy who can make the decisions, the guy who chooses who he wants in positions of power. So one might wonder why would he want somebody who seems to be as fringe a person as Ahmadinejad, why would he want him in power? He's very useful for floating trial balloons. He has a very salutary effect in terms of Iran's foreign policy. He has convinced some people that the Ahmadinejad, you're Ahmadinejad about. has convinced some people that the Iranian leadership is irrational, and in doing so, they have attained a certain amount of deterrent clout. There is a reason that the Europeans are nervous about the United States pushing too hard. There is a reason that the Russians and the Chinese are, are not so much sympathetic as unwilling to allow American pressures on Iran because they fear this guy could be uh, dangerous um, or that he is being allowed to say these things because the Iranian leadership, the real leadership, is dangerous. And so that's a very powerful deterrent. It's very Schelling-esque. You know, Thomas Schelling won the Nobel Prize in Economics uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, one of his most famous contributions in uh, soft application of game theory uh, to national security problems was to think about brinkmanship. Brinksmanship is a strategy that if you, if you convince the other guy that you'll drive off the cliff, the other guy gets pretty nervous about you. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason I think some Americans are nervous about Iran, that there's a threat, a perception of a threat, which whether it's real or not. I guess one question I would have is that those top, the 17 people who you would rank in front of Ahmadinejad, would you say they have similar views um, uh, or different views? Let me cast that a little differently. Would they like to build a nuclear weapon? That's a good question. test a nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. Ahmadinejad would like to build and test a nuclear weapon. Ali Khamenei would probably like to develop a fuel cycle capable of making weapons-grade fuel, but not making a weapon. Why? Uh, because having the capacity to make weapons-grade fuel is a wonderful uh, bargaining chip for extracting things from the rest of the world. Having a nuclear weapon may also be, but it may also lead to a deterrent attack by the, uh, or preemptive attack by the Israelis. Uh, you look at the guys below that, the rest of the Supreme Council, some of the key figures, uh, Larajani, Sharudi, uh, the current mayor of Tehran, Kalibaf. Um, they're much more pragmatic. My guess is that, uh, more than my guess, my assessment is that uh, over the next several years, they, they won't advocate giving up a nuclear bomb, but they will, in their internal circles, advocate not doing more than building a, uh, a, a fuel cycle capable at the research level of making weapons-grade fuel, not at the level of being able to produce enough of it to actually make a bomb. Now, you said earlier, you made a reference to uh, pragmatism and, and rationality. A, a lot of people would argue that you know, in the Middle East, there's not a lot of pragmatism. Everyone, there's a lot of religion. Religion leads to emotional assessments. And yet you persist, as you have in previous podcasts, and one of the reasons I like talking to you, Bruce, is you persist in treating these players as if they were rational. Uh, now, as a social scientist, that's 
clearly the best strategy because it, it is one that leads to predictions uh, that can be falsified. Do you think it's the best strategy for uh, those of us who are anxious, uh, for those who would want to sleep better at night, for the next president? What would you say um, is the right way to think about it? Well, uh, let me first of all say I have a rather good track record of anticipating actions by the Iranian government uh, in print before the events over the past 24 years. So uh, I'm pretty confident that the assumption of rationality is warranted by the evidence. Now, you want to give us an example of one of those predictions? Uh, sure. In 1984, I, in print, predicted who would succeed Ayatollah Khomeini when he died. Uh, and what that would mean about policy. At the time, he had designated who his successor would be, so Iran experts were very sure they knew who was going to succeed him. He had designated uh, the Ayatollah Montessori. I don't imagine that name is all that familiar it's to not, you. No. As it turns out, not the successor. But in the piece I wrote in 1984, in, I wrote it in 83, in print in 1984, by name, I said there would be shared leadership by Ali Khamenei and Rafsanjani. Now, Mr. Khomeini died in June of 1989, five years after my paper was published. And it was Rafsanjani and Khamenei in shared leadership. And this wasn't some, you know, magic. It wasn't that I had some deep personal insight. I am not an Iran expert. It was that I was using the standard tools of social science. I was, I was using a game theory model I had designed uh, to make predictions about strategic choices. Uh, and it, these are the guys who clearly popped out in the equilibria as the people who were shaping other people's decisions. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty confident about the rationality assumption. Now, some people make the mistake of thinking that rationality means doing good things. Or easygoing. Yeah. yeah, right. It means yeah. doing what the people think is in their own best interest. So let's take a look at what the evidence is that Middle East leaders or that the Iranian leaders are irrational. So in the two earlier podcasts that we did, we, we talked about work that follows from a book I wrote a few, few years ago called The Logic of Political Survival and some follow-up research I've done using that same model since then. That model, that theory starts with the assumption that leaders want to keep their jobs. This does not seem to offend very many people as, no. as a notion. So, as it turns out, since the uh, Iranian fundamentalist revolution in 1979 that brought uh, Khomeini to power, there have been two supreme leaders, Khomeini, who died in 1989, and Ali Khamenei, who has been the supreme leader since Khomeini died in 1989. We're talking 19 years. That's a pretty good run. So if he's been interested in political survival, he has certainly demonstrated that he knows how to do it. The data are consistent with the that. The data theory, are yes. consistent. Now, if we ask the question, why would Iran contemplate, why would Iranian leaders contemplate giving the world the impression that they are building or trying to build a nuclear weapon? Well, we should step back and ask, what would the motivations be? Right. So, one reasonable motivation is that they fear an attack by the United States or Israel. And if they can get far enough, quickly enough, before there is a preemptive attack, such as Israel launched against Iraq's Osirak nuclear facility, and as they did quite recently in Syria, um, then they have a deterrent. You know, we look at the record of India and Pakistan, since both of them detonated uh, nuclear weapons, they've made a real effort to get along. They've made a real effort to reduce the tension in Kashmir and have done so successfully. So one motivation is deterrence. Can I ask you a question? Okay, go ahead. But, but there are many others. And so the arguments are that the deterrent claim is, is false because the Israelis will move beforehand. But look at the other things that a, that a nuclear uh, effort does for Iran. Iran is in a competition with al-Qaeda to be the dominant international force in the spread of Islamic revolution. Al-Qaeda is a Sunni force. The Iranian government is a Shia force. 
They hate each other. Iran slipped to second place, maybe further. This is a way of their reasserting leadership within the Islamic world. It's a way of their asserting leadership within the Middle Eastern community of Muslim nations. It's a way of achieving nationalist pride, which helps to keep the government in power as the economy goes to hell. These are all perfectly rational reasons for building or trying to build or saying that you're trying to build, they don't say that, a nuclear weapon. They say they want to enrich uranium solely for the purpose of peaceful uh, energy uses, which, by the way, is their right under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, which they are quick to assert. But there are a lot of good reasons in terms of their political survival for doing what they're doing. Well, let's step back. And what would threaten the political survival of uh, the head of the Supreme Council right now? Right? You say they, the first uh, Khomeini leader of, of Iran went from 79 to 89, died in his boots uh, in office. The current Ali Khomeini is going, got a good run going. Uh, what, how much, what constrains him? What, He'll probably step down in a few years. I don't know anything about uh, Iranian uh, political structure, but you do, so share. So there are several things that constrain them. Um, their economy is done very poorly. As a result, there has been a lot of popular unrest. If you go back into the newspapers prior to Ahmadinejad's coming to power, and shortly after as well, there were a lot of demonstrations by students wanting more democracy. I remember that. Those have stopped. Yes, they have. Now, why have they stopped? Were they suppressed? Well, I'm sure there was some degree of suppression, but attention has been turned away from the economic woes towards Iran's nationalist pride in not being humiliated and pushed around by the outside world. So one of the things they did through this nuclear program is they have helped to win over many of the students and others who are agitating for more democracy. They've, they've quieted them down. They've made them be agitators for Iranian respectability in the world, for Iranian nationalism. That's been very effective. So they've, they've gotten rid of one significant threat that way. The United States carries the big stick, apparently, although hasn't used it. Well, why not? Well, one of the reasons, of course, is that we've got enough headaches in Iraq that it would be very difficult. But there are other reasons. The other reasons have to do with the European Union's position, which is sympathetic to economic sanctions, which will almost certainly accomplish nothing, but fearful of military action and trying to constrain the United States, making it politically costly for the United States to engage in such action. That's beneficial for the Iranians. It's also beneficial for the Europeans who do more business with Iran than the United States does. It's also been beneficial in terms of forging a tighter relationship with the aspiring nationalism of Russia under Putin and his uh, current stand-in. So there have been lots of benefits to the Iranian leadership, ways for them to diminish the threats of their hold on power. But you spoke about them earlier as if uh, they were a... Um, uh, as if they're internal political structure was, was stable. You talked about who had votes, the ability to veto, etc. Uh, where does that power come from? Is it only uh, threatened by a revolution from another party? Or is the Supreme Council going to stay just like it is until for the near future? Oh, I, I, for the near future, yeah, it's going to stay as it is. Um, I think that when Khamenei steps down his successors are likely to be quite a bit more uh, moderate and more open towards reaching out to the West. And I believe his successor will be either Kalibaf or Sharudi. Um, the regime is stable. Uh, it's hard to talk about the institutions of government in a place like Iran as being stable or not stable because the institutions of government are tools of the leadership who hold power through the threat of oppression, 
and suppression of different points of view that, that they don't like. They don't allow people to get into the parliament to oppose the theocracy they want to run. The theocratic leadership has the final say on everything. They, they look an awful lot like the Catholic Church looked in the 1200s, 1300s, you could argue 1400s, I kind of think of the Catholic Church as having gone into decline in 1302, but that's another story. Um, oh, the good old days. Yeah. So the, these are folks who have a stable situation for themselves. Is it likely to last a really long time? Well, they're running the economy into the ground. They do have the good fortune, as economists like to call it, of the resource curse. When they get themselves into political trouble, they can pump more oil out of the ground, and therefore they can generate more money with which to buy people off and calm threats to their hold on leadership. Uh, it's, it's why Putin uh, has been so successful as well. Okay, so let's, um, let's go back to the th earlier thread where you suggested that it was in their interest to uh, create, what did you call it, fuel cycle... Phrase. Yeah, a, a, a fuel cycle capable at a level that's capable of generating weapons-grade fuel. Okay. So the same argument would seem to apply to uh, Israeli fears, and yet doesn't, if, if Iran's interest is to fill the power vacuum or to at least lead the uh, Arab world or to be recognized as a leader in the Arab world, uh would a strike on Israel help that effort? In which case, wouldn't we think they would be more interested in an actual nuclear weapon rather than just the pretense of one? No, because if they actually struck Israel, the United States would reduce Iran to ashes. And uh, that wouldn't do a lot of good for the ambition to dominate the uh, Muslim world. It's an interesting question, by the way, as to whether the Israelis have the military capability to take out preemptive the Iranian facilities. Yeah. They don't have the missiles with sufficient range, so they'd have to do it with bombers. The bombers probably would have to refuel in Iraq. The Iraqi That'd government's not going to let them do awkward, that. Yeah. Or the U.S. would help with refueling in the air. The U.S. is not likely to be willing to do that either. Yeah. Well, why do you why do you think that the U.S. would strike Iran after an attack on Israel? Oh, I think the United States is committed to the defense of Israel. I think that that's a commitment that no American president could afford not to honor. Now, would the strike be nuclear? Not necessarily wouldn't be necessary to have a nuclear strike to take out Iran. No. I just wonder. I just don't know if that deterrent is that... Uh, well, let me say strong. something about that, because yeah, there, there is this argument... Because right now, I'd say, if anything, the, uh, the reason I mention is that I hear so-called experts tell us that uh, certainly this summer, as I said it last summer, of course, too, Israel is going to, going to take out Iran whatever that means, or take out the Iranian capabilities. You point out, one, they might not be able to uh, technologically, and two, I think politically, uh, Israel's situation doesn't seem to me to be particularly um, attractive right now for that kind of thing. Um, but you hear the same thing about the United States. And um, I, I can't imagine a, a worse time for an intervention of that flavor uh, post-Iraq. I, I think the political consequences for a president... Who did that? I've already said about Bush. Bush is going to take out Iran before he leaves office. Saying, Unimaginable to me. Uh, that statement has been being made since 2003. Uh, as it turns out, there has been no action against, uh, no military action against Iran. And in the Israeli case, where do these statements come from? I have no doubt they come from people who have been stimulated by government leaders to make these statements. Uh, but they come from people who are not themselves government leaders. They are what in game theory is called cheap talk. If the, if, a, the government, if, if, if the government leadership came out and said that if we believe the Iranians are within 
months of a nuclear weapon, we will destroy their facilities. That would be a costly signal because that would certainly motivate people on the other side to prepare for an attack. Uh, the leadership doesn't come out and say anything that direct uh, for good reason. Let's talk a little bit about deterrence. It's very fashionable at the moment for people to think, oh, the Israelis are going to take out the Iranians, uh, or the Iranians are crazy, they're religious fanatics, they would attack uh, Israel if they had a nuclear weapon because they don't care if they're, if, if they're martyrs and so on and so forth. Right. Common claim. So first of all, I like to look at um, the history of um, world experience in the nuclear and non-nuclear vein. Make an observation. There have been a very, very large number of international disputes since August the 6th, 1945, when the United States dropped the first atom bomb on Hiroshima. Hundreds and hundreds of disputes. And many of those disputes became violent and rose to the level to be called wars. If you divide the countries of the world into four groups, a nuclear power against another nuclear power, a nuclear power against countries that are under the nuclear umbrella or defense of a nuclear power, a nuclear power against a country that is not defended by a nuclear power, and two countries, neither of which is nuclear. And you just plot from the disputes that have occurred, the probability of their becoming violent and involving deaths and rising to the level of war, you will see nothing, virtually nothing, at the nuke, nuke level in terms of violence and war. And as you slide, it, there's basically no war and very little violence. There's a little bit of violence, of course, because of the, the Israelis are presumed to have nuclear weapons, so they haven't announced that, <laughs> which is itself interesting because the only reason for having nuclear weapons is to deter somebody. So keeping it a secret is an interesting decision. But in any event, the only time you get to observe war is when the adversary has no nuclear threat, either its own or a friend who will come to its nuclear defense. Now, a lot of this is because countries get bullied into giving in, but the point is that, that that's the point of deterrence. You only get war when there isn't the mutual deterrence. So I, I look at facts, and I have a hard time seeing why the Iranians would behave any differently. I look at their record of behavior. I'm having a very hard time seeing what the Iranian leadership has done. We're now talking, they've been in power almost 30 years. What have they done that one could reasonably portray as irrational in the international political arena? They have increased their influence in the world relative to what it was. They have established independence. They are not anybody's lackey. The Shah was our lackey. Good guy for us, not so good for the Iranian people, probably better than these guys are for the Iranian people. Where is the great evidence of their irrationality? People used to say this about Muammar Gaddafi. Muammar Gaddafi rolled tanks to the border of Egypt and threatened to overthrow Mubarak's regime. Mubarak rolled tanks to the border and Gaddafi's tanks turned around and went back to Tripoli. These people know what they're doing. They know how to stay in power. They don't take undue risks. There's no evidence for it. So, before I turn to the more general question, which I want to talk about of threat and danger generally, I'll stick with this issue of nuclear deterrence, which is such an interesting question. Uh, much of U.S. foreign policy has in the last, what, 10, 20, I don't know how many years you want to, maybe longer, has been focused on making sure that no one else gets a nuclear weapon that doesn't already have one. And yet you're suggesting that really wouldn't be a particularly bad thing, perhaps. Should, uh, should we be so vigilant about trying to keep North Korea, Iran, I don't know who else, from getting a nuclear weapon? Should that be a major focus of U.S. foreign policy, which it, which it appears to be? So... In 1982, I believe, William Riker and I uh, wrote an article, appeared in a journal called the Journal of Conflict Resolution, called Assessing the Merits of Selective Nuclear Proliferation, in which we didn't take a normative position one way or the other. We took a positive position, a logical position, evidence-based position. How does the world work rather than Which, how we'd like it to yes, work? Yes, exactly. And, and here was what we said. We pointed out that 
that where there was mutual deterrence, war was vastly less likely. And we asked, why is the United States opposed to proliferation among those countries who are our friends, who might be threatened by others over whom we have very little influence with regard to their becoming nuclear? And the answer was, well, either you believe in deterrence, in which case it's difficult to oppose nuclear proliferation, or you believe that you're willing to sacrifice deterrence to have the United States be in a dominant political position. Now, of course, if we have the atom bomb and they have not, that's an advantage. So uh, should the United States oppose nuclear proliferation from the perspective that it gives us a great advantage in the international community in influencing, shaping things? Of course we should oppose nuclear proliferation. Should we oppose it because there is some cosmic threat to world survival through proliferation? No, probably not. But that's not why we oppose it. We oppose it. That's a good window dressing for opposing it. Right. Because I think that's, and that's what most people, I think, publicly talk about and what most citizens think is the reason most citizens support it. Yeah. Millions of people have died since the end of World War II in conventional wars. Millions of people. Millions between just Iran and Iraq. And yet people don't seem to think that the absence of a deterrent is important. Yeah. It's an interesting point. Um, you said we, and one of, um, one of the themes of this, uh, of this show is the danger of saying we. You say we want, we don't want. There is no we in the United States, of course, uh, other than the we do share the interest that we don't want to be wiped out by a, a nuclear weapon from somewhere else, or domestically, obviously. Um, but when you talk about America's interest, what to, to say, be a dominant power on the international scene, what do we get out of that? Yes, Where well, we I, is I, I, you, I'm, I'm sorry me. to have used the word <laughs> we, particularly since I have argued that there is no such thing as the national interest yeah. under most circumstances, except for the exception right. of utter obliteration, which happens to be the topic of nuclear weapons. And it's relevant, yeah. Um, What do we get out of it? Well, political leaders get get benefits out of it. It means that they can get to impose their will on others, which means they can extract, which gives us a benefit, they can extract policy compliance on our behalf, that is ours as voters for those who vote for the people who are elected. They can, at the margin, extract policy compliance through the carrot and the stick. The carrot of foreign aid, which buys policy concessions, and the stick of the threat of uh, military intervention to achieve compliance by imposing a regime that will do more of our bidding, the U.S. government's bidding, rather than somebody else's. This is presumably why we overthrew Saddam Hussein, to get somebody who would pursue a policy more aligned with the interests of the United States. It's interesting to note that while President Bush has touted promoting democracy in Iraq, after the uh, national election, all those folks with the purple purple fingers, uh, it turned out President Bush was not happy with the fellow who was emerging as the likely prime minister. And so he made a public statement. I don't think that guy would be a good choice. How about this guy over here, Mr. Maliki? We like him. Son of a gun. Mr. Maliki wound up being in charge. So it wasn't about democracy. It was about getting the guy we thought we could shape in the manner that would deliver for the, for the American voter the policies at the margin that they would like out of Iraq. So, let me, Not so successful, by the I way. I understand. Well, that's how I want to raise. And I, this is a general question now about the, this, pers- this perspective on international uh, relations. You know, there's sort of, I think there, people hold two sort of viewpoints, two viewpoints. One is the altruistic viewpoint that American foreign policy and military action, et cetera, is a force for good in the world or a force for evil. It's either um, uh, trying to save the world or destroy it. Uh, the other view really is that um, is the pragmatic view that I would attribute to you. Uh, one problem with with the pragmatic view is that while President Bush may have preferred the fellow over there, Maliki, it's so many 
the law of unintended consequences works with such vengeance in the international area. It's really hard to imagine that our political leadership at any forget partisan issues, forget what you think about President Bush, that there's any hope of, of fashioning a, a world order of any sort, given the, the things that, that crop up that, that we didn't anticipate. The Shah being an example, right? We pushed, we, got, we had our guy in Iran, and it, it didn't turn out so well. It may have turned out well for a while. So much of history seems to be of that nature. Uh, a disabuse, you, Bruce. You, uh, <laughs> you've made a terrible assumption. Okay. You made that we assumption, which you chastised right. me properly for, which I just backed away from. Uh, when you say it didn't turn out so well, take the Shah, um, it turned out very well for many generations of American leaders. Political leaders, particularly in a democracy, have a very short time horizon. They're not worried about doing what is good for the country in the long run, if by the country we mean, say, majority of the people. And if by the, the long run you mean eight years eight, or longer. Yes, <laughs> more than four. Yeah. Uh, if, Six, maybe. If it happens that it, to get to that good state of the world, they have to do things in the short run that will hurt their chances of being re-elected. So... Uh, the Shah was brought to power after we over, helped to overthrow Mossadegh in 19, I think it was 53. The Shah was overthrown in 79, and by the way, as a point made in the logic of political survival, one of the things that makes a non-democratic leader severely vulnerable to being overthrown is for people to know that the person has a terminal illness. The Shah was not overthrown until it was known that he had terminal cancer. Marcos was not overthrown until it was known that he was in the late stages of lupus and that it was no longer controllable. And I could go on with a long litany of these people. Mobutu was not overthrown until it was known that he had terminal cancer. And on and on and on. So. We got out of the Shah 26 years, that's a lot of presidents, none of whom were worried about what would happen on the next guy's watch. Well said. That's not their problem. Well said. So. Um, so what, let's go to the present. What's Bush getting out of Maliki as opposed okay, to... Okay, so Bush got a lot. First of all, he got reelected. This is the ultimate <laughs> goal in, in our term-limited political system. He got reelected despite not having a successful first term. Uh, what does he get since then? Well, it's an interesting question. I believe he believed that Maliki was going to deliver a successful outcome in Iraq, which would bolster the Republican Party's standing and its prospects of re-election. I presume that, that President Bush actually believes in many of the principles that he says he believes in. Um, whether you like them or not is besides the point. People get confused between is the person principled and do I like the principles? He's clearly principled. He sticks to the view that he holds. Well, I'm now, so sure not, not very good at updating yeah. on new evidence, but that's a separate matter. Um, so presumably he thought he would get a better shot for the Republican Party in the next presidential election. Turns out he was wrong. You can't blame a leader for what they thought ex ante before the fact if the evidence before the fact was consistent. There were all those people with the purple uh, fingers, you know. That well, I mean, let, let's stop there, though. I, I want to go into, let, let, let me open up a different, a more general question. On the surface, it would seem that a lame duck president would be a risk taker. Doesn't have to run for re-election. Now would be the chance to really follow his principles. And yet, that does not seem to be the case. Presidents in their second term appear to be incredibly pragmatic. And by pragmatic, I mean they trade off principles for their opportunity to see their party successful. And one obvious answer is legacy. Uh, if your party is thrown out after you leave, it looks like you were a failure. Another might be the plums that come later that could be dispensed by the party, but it is surprising to me. If principles matter at all, I don't, 
I don't think they matter much, but if they matter at all, you'd think this would be a chance to indulge your principles. Seems not to happen. It's such a charming but incorrect view. Isn't it? Uh, yeah. So let, 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 let me try to address that. Again, term limits are a topic taken up in the logic of political survival. Term limits have two consequences. Uh, one consequence is that up until, in, in the last term, up until the time at which the political cost of impeaching and removing the president exceed the cost of waiting him out, up until that moment, when, so during the time when it would still make sense potentially to impeach, the president has to try particularly hard to do a good job. I think President Bush did try within the lights of what he thought was a good job. Didn't work out, but he thought it would. He did take risks. He did continue to pursue a strategy in Iraq that he believed in until his party got devastated in the midterm election. Right. And then he realized, oh, <laughs> the voters are not happy. When you pass that moment at which the cost of removing you is greater than the cost of waiting you out. Once it's too costly to remove, then the president is pretty free to do whatever he can within the constraints of the power that he has. So let's ask what the president does in that period of time and what he doesn't do. So President Bush might, for example, want to bomb Iran. He might want to take out their nuclear facilities. I don't know. Which would seem to be... Consistent with his view with of the his, world. Right. But he... And, by the way, which also I think th that urge is what motivates some people to say, well, it's certainly going to happen now, even but, though it would be devastating politically. Who cares? He's not running again. Well, who cares is the Democratic House and uh, Senate whose approval he requires. So he is constrained by checks and balances. He's commander-in-chief. He can do that. He is commander-in-chief, but he is very short on money. So they'd have to give him some, now, he, he could do it. Could do it on the cheap. But it's, <laughs> it's not that it, expensive. Well. Yeah, to do it effectively, it's a little To do it effectively, you know. Yeah. Jimmy Carter tried late in his term yeah. when these constraints were gone to do it on the cheap. Didn't work so well. It didn't work out well. It was a disaster. Yeah. Uh, so he, Bush is constrained. Members of his own party will oppose it because they oh, for sure. are continuing on. They have not faced a term Correct. limit. They want, they want to have a chance of getting reelected. So it's not that he's free to do it. What is he free to do? Well, the president is free to do appointments to government office not so high that it requires Senate approval. He's free to give pardons, sell them. He's free to take furniture from the White House. <laughs> Take a look at the record of presidents and go back as early as John Adams, the first term-limited president because he lost re-election. And so he had a long lame duck period from November of the election to uh, November of 1800 to March of 1801. John Adams, who had built a reputation his entire life of a man of absolute integrity, packed the government with friends and relatives, something he had not done at all during all the prior time that he was in office. But once he, had, he knew that he was not reelected and there was nothing they could do to him, he just stuffed the government with his buddies, which led to a very important Supreme Court case. Bill Clinton apparently sold pardons. We can go through lots of presidents. It's not partisan. It's not that Democrats do it and Republicans don't, or Republicans do it and Democrats don't. Where their hands are not tied, and they are term limited, they behave poorly. Where their hands are not tied, they behave less poorly in the sense of, of breaking the law. Now, President Bush took some pretty huge risks in his second term and in the latter part of his first term. Torture is a big risk. They now have, many of the people in his administration now have to worry about whether the blanket ex-ante pardons that were granted can stand. They have to worry about whether they face war crimes charges. That's serious business. But what they believed up front and what they know now are not the same thing. So let's turn now, uh, last quarter of our time, to this general issue of fear and threat and danger. I, um, being an economist, I'm more 
aware of how it's used in economic news. Uh, and it's used with some success. The, the threat of foreign nations' economic competition is invoked by pundits, by activists, by politicians as a way to alarm the populace. Uh, it's used more dramatically, though, of course, in, um, uh, in political circles, in foreign policy circles, uh, where the threat of, of an invasion, a nuclear attack, terrorism, etc., gets people's attention. Uh, it's interesting to me, this gap, I, I know it's there on the economic side between what I perceive to be the reality and the, and, the, and the rhetoric, and you believe it's often there on the political side. So I want you to talk about why that's so successful, in, in your opinion, and then uh, talk I'll have a follow-up, but let's start there. Hey, let me first of all start with an example of uh, f- such fear. Um, it is frequently said that an al-Qaeda attack against the United States is inevitable. It has now been almost seven years since 9-11. You don't hear people crediting the current administration with having prevented an attack, which would be their great success. Could be possible, but I don't think that's the reason. Yes, you hear this great fear of terrorist attack, although the record of terrorist attack in the United States outside of 9-11 is essentially not there. Um, We have been very secure within our homes. Now, why does this sort of thing work? So we know... We're on, we're del- as, I've, as I've often pointed out, uh, we're on level orange threat every day. Every day. Every day. It's, we're at the highest level. Uh, you'd think it's there'd be one day. Second highest. Second highest. It is second, second highest? highest? What's the highest? Uh, I think it's red. Oh, really? But I don't pay attention to it much. Something but, has to be on fire but for it's, red, it's a, probably. It's, but. It's, it's a politically very uh, handy level, because if you're lower and something happens, of course, you get blamed. If nothing happens, aha, it's because we've been vigilant. Yeah, it, it just, but what, I, what strikes me is not, not the level, but the persistent, the, the, the yes, consistency non- of it. Non-variance. There's never a day where it just, it was a little safer today, it's okay. It's always scary. And obviously one of the sillier things about that is that if it's scary every day, after a while it's not scary at all, because every day goes by and nothing happens. Um, but it is clearly the case that many Americans are very afraid of another 9-11 as if it were perhaps imminent. Yes. It's why I think they tolerate taking off their shoes at the, uh, at the airport and a whole bunch of uh, more frightening and serious uh, and costly things that we do to, to, to fight the potential of terrorism. Obviously, we don't want a terrorist attack anything like 9-11 again, but you're suggesting that that is... Um, very unlikely. So why is it unlikely, and why do we? Why do we? Why are we so worried? So uh, it's unlikely, in my view, because we have done an effective job of disrupting Al Qaeda. We decapitated Al Qaeda. We have cut off their ability to communicate. There is a, in my opinion, a gross misunderstanding of Al Qaeda among most Americans. Most Americans seem to believe that Al-Qaeda is a monolithic, global terrorist movement. Al-Qaeda is overwhelmingly a movement of regional terrorist bodies. Osama bin Laden's great accomplishment from his perspective would be to have brought, tried to coordinate across those bodies for global jihad. The the regional elements of Al-Qaeda in North Africa, in East Asia, along the Mediterranean coast, and so forth, is in advancing their agenda in their backyard, not global jihad. Their interest is in taking over the Egyptian government, taking over the Saudi government. Would they like to do harm to the United States? Yes. Do they want to dissipate their resources in achieving what they really care about, coming to political power in the places I just mentioned, for example, in order to punish the United States? No. And Osama bin Laden and his fellows in the sort of the, 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 the global piece of this are much less able to coordinate the global picture because they can't communicate. Uh, with each other, let alone with the regionals, very effectively. And the regionals are busy pursuing their own agendas. Most Americans don't seem to have noticed that. No. Um, what, what are Americans fearful of? Well, 
we know that people tend to look at things that have very high costs and attribute to them higher probabilities than in reality yeah. is the case. We do tend. The EPA Superfund spends more than a billion dollars per life saved. Airlines spend nothing remotely close to that. We think of the threat of toxic wastes killing us as so dangerous, although in reality it's a very low probability event, that we inflate the probability because the cost, if there were such a toxic leak or whatever, would be high. Politicians exploit that because it's beneficial to them. It gives them something to focus on. So we don't know whether Al-Qaeda has not launched another attack against the United States because the war on terrorism has been successful, which I, I believe in that, on that dimension is the truth, or whether they're just not interested, which may also be the truth. We don't know. So we, we look at it and we think, well, they're, they're out there plotting. We attribute to them much greater uh, insight and knowledge than, it, than is likely they have. So, you know, you get these stories about how they had this deep insight into the inner workings of the structure of the World Trade Center, the architectural inner workings. It's very unlikely that they had that knowledge. Um, as a, a former colleague of mine, now teaches at Ohio State, has pointed out, more Americans die each year, children, drowning in toilet bowls than from terrorist attacks, with the one exception of 9-11. We don't spend a lot of money on toilet bowl security. No. Uh, although, by the way, you can very cheaply get a toilet bowl that would prevent this problem. Uh, but we don't. Um, we don't spend a lot of money worrying about how to protect people from falling out of third, fourth, fifth floor windows, although many, many more people die from those accidents than from terrorist attacks. We are terribly fearful of a nuclear attack. In the 50s and 60s, we built uh, bomb shelters to protect ourselves. There were businesses building bomb shelters to protect ourselves against these attacks. There have been none, zero. So, but these things sell well. From the very beginning with regard to nuclear weapons, the United States helped sell the idea that nuclear weapons were these incredibly dangerous things, unlike anything else, despite the firebombing of Tokyo, Dresden, Dresden. Hamburg. Uh, so that Hirohito could use that and say that he, he could justify surrender. This is a weapon unlike anything else we would die for our country, but we can't defend against this. There's no point to dying for your country when there's no hope. There is no hope with this weapon. That was what he said. That was how he justified surrender. And we facilitated that so that he could surrender. So people build these fears around things that would be very costly if they happened, but exactly because they would be very costly are extremely unlikely to happen because you have the incentives to prevent them. It is worse in politics than in economics because politicians can be demagogues and gain advantage. Yeah, but it's interesting. I think it's much worse in foreign policy than it is in economic policy, partly because I think um, with economics you can only threaten uh, you know, the risk is, is smaller. So you know, the economy might go into a recession. That's different than losing New York. In New York is is so horrifying to people that a, a suitcase bomb is something that that people genuinely worry about. They yeah. don't worry about the Chinese destroying New York economically. They could maybe affect our manufacturing jobs, but it's just not the same. The the magnitude that politicians have to play with in foreign policy is so much larger. Um, and yet we are continually hearing that we are on the verge of an economic catastrophe worse than the Great Depression. Yeah. Uh, you get these extremist statements, uh, or the papers are very fond, as they're doing today, of talking about record deficits, by which they mean that the nominal yeah. value of the deficit is greater than at any time in history, but not as a percentage of gross national and product. Yet, and yet, that's all true, and yet 
economic demagoguery has been relatively unsuccessful in the United States. The, the real, in recent years, the protectionist uh, folk, uh, people like um, Gephardt or Edwards, who have used economic demagoguery to the largest level, have not been successful, although every successful candidate <laughs> uses it to some degree. Let me, let me, let me close with a, with a, a question about um, politics and foreign policy. Um, we're, we're facing an election soon. One could argue, and I, I think you might argue, and I want to hear if I'm right, that who is elected is relatively unimportant in the sense that their self-interest as leaders and pragmatists, which has been your theme, is going to lead them to very similar policy outcomes. Do you think that's true? On the surface, Kane appears to be a hawk who who would be a more aggressive foreign policy um, advocate, and Obama appears to be a dove. Uh, I tend to argue that they'll both probably do something similar. They'll just use different words to talk about it. Do you think Mc that's true? McCain has already said 16 months is about the right time for drawing down troops in Iraq provided yeah. the situation on the ground. So he has his proviso. Uh, Obama has a very similar proviso. He just phrases it differently. The rhetoric is different. Um, I don't think they would do very much that's different. The, the reality is that the United States is overstretched militarily and needs to bring some of the troops home to do other jobs. Um, yeah, I don't think there would be big differences because they would each face checks and balances. There's a little bit bigger risk with Obama than with McCain with regard to foreign policy in that he will have a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, so he is less constrained than uh, McCain would be. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I am uh, I'm not impressed with the arguments that I hear coming out of either camp, uh, presidential campaign. Uh, on foreign policy, uh, I don't hear any careful original thinking. I, I hear thinking that is very much in terms of the old school balance of power, realism, combined with hope. Hey, they're running for president. You know, they got to appeal to the average voter, and the average yeah, voter, that's wish, the language we understand. I wish they would at least talk to people who understood better, um, <laughs> but they're talking to people who understand the same way. Um, yeah, I don't think there would be a big difference. It would be differences. I think that um, uh, Barack Obama would make an effort to meet with the Iranians, and it would be interesting to see whether Ali Khamenei would meet with him or whether it would be Ahmadinejad. And McCain would not. Um, at the margin, will that matter? Could matter. Uh, John Kennedy, in his first inaugural address, famously said, uh, we will never fear to negotiate, and we will never negotiate out of fear. And Barack Obama is fond of quoting that line, forgetting that he went unprepared to meet with uh, Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, in Vienna, and that one of the consequences of that meeting was that Nikita Khrushchev concluded he could push Kennedy around, and that was an important factor leading to the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, which brought the world almost to the brink of nuclear war. Um, so, would Barack Obama figure that out along the way? My guess is yes. He seems like a very bright guy. Um, so that, at the end of the day, I don't think it makes a whole lot of difference. That's a good place to end. Uh, I want to mention to our listeners that uh, we've covered some of these issues about perception and probability in the podcast with Cass Sunstein on worst-case scenarios and uh, with uh, Taleb in talking about the black swan. It's kind of interesting that we underestimate sometimes – Taleb's thesis is that we underestimate black swans. We underestimate the risk of the – very improbable, disastrous event. Sunstein's is that we, in many areas, we overestimate. I think that's the main finding of, of the psychological literature that are, as you point out, when the costs are high, uh, low probability events have more salience to us than they probably should have, at least from a 
expected uh, utility outcome. But uh, anything else you want to say in closing, Bruce? Anything cheerful? Um, I, I'm, I'm tempted to address what you've just said in the Go context ahead. of global warming, but I think I will not. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll leave it there, although we talk about it a little bit in that Sunstein podcast. My guest today has been Bruce Buena de Mesquita of the Hoover Institution and New York University. Bruce, as always, it's a pleasure having you on EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.